You know, as we've been going through this Sermon on the Mount series, a number of you have expressed your appreciation. You've told me how you've appreciated the fact that we're studying this sermon, and I appreciate you telling me that. But to be honest, I haven't always enjoyed it. And I seriously wonder if you really have. I mean, can any serious reader of the Sermon on the Mount actually enjoy it? C.S. Lewis would answer no. In writing a rejoinder to a scholar who had publicly criticized him in a magazine journal, Lewis addressed the accusation that he didn't care much for Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and its ethic. And to that, Lewis replied, as to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for here means liking or enjoying, or I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. Don't you love that imagery there? When Lewis read the Sermon on the Mount, it fell to him like a sledgehammer knocking him around passage after passage, flattening him on his face. I wonder if you felt the same as you've been studying the passage together. When we studied the Beatitudes, we were bombarded one after another with humbling verses that caused us to self-reflect, to, to even question the genuineness of our faith. Is ours the kingdom of heaven? And then we were forced to wrestle with whether or not our Christian witness is salty enough, whether or not we are shining enough gospel light into this world. And then, and then we were confronted with chapter 5, verse 20, which says that we will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. And that crushing verse was followed up with six illustrations of what that righteousness looks like. And each of them, they hit harder and harder until we get to today's passage, the sixth and final illustration, which feels like a knockout punch. Listen again to verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If you can read those words and then close your Bible and, and, and smile with tranquil pleasure and think, wow, what, what a great teacher Jesus is. I, I really respect Jesus' ethical teaching. If you're not flattened by these words, then I think you weren't really listening. Because I wholeheartedly agree with C.S. Lewis when he says it is foolish to read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and conclude that he is just a great moral teacher. Now, he is doing far more than just offering us ethical teaching. He is more like a king commanding his subjects. Or if you prefer, he's a father instructing his children. Either way, it's not a situation where you can just sift through his teaching and pick and choose which verses you want to apply to your life. 
Later on in chapter 7, verse 21, he identifies himself as the Lord of the kingdom of heaven, and he warns there that only those who do the will of his Father will be allowed to enter. There will be those on that day crying out, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this? Didn't we go to church? Didn't we serve in this way? And he's saying, I don't even know you. If you're not doing the will of my Father, I don't know you. That's not a sledgehammer to the face. I don't know what is. Are you reading this sermon rightly? Are you taking Jesus' words seriously? Because if you are, then you shouldn't really enjoy reading the Sermon on the Mount. In the same way that, that you shouldn't enjoy receiving chemotherapy. Certainly not fun, but it could very well save your life. I don't know about you, but I'll take life-giving over enjoyable any day. So as we consider today's passage, just prepare to be flattened. Prepare to be hit by a sledgehammer. It's going to hurt a bit, but it's a good pain. It's like when you go to the gym and work out and, and you feel that good pain. You know it's, it's worth it because something is happening. You're growing. You're maturing you're hopefully becoming more like your heavenly father. So I want to consider as we go through this passage four commands. If you want to follow along, look in your bulletin, you find an outline, four commands here. First, reject hate for your enemies. Second, choose love for your enemies. Third, imitate your father in heaven. And fourth, surpass the world in righteousness. So let's begin by rejecting any hate for our enemies. This is what Jesus does, starting in verse 43. Now, we've noted before how in this section, Jesus has been challenging the scribes and Pharisees in their interpretation of of the Mosaic law, and he's been using the same formula as he has used in the other five illustrations, where he starts by quoting what they have, have taught, and then he follows up with his interpretation, which is a truer reflection of the heart of God's law. He thereby demonstrates how the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees have really distorted the Old Testament. And that's pretty clear when you get to our passage when he quotes what they've heard being said. Look again in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, the first half, that does come from the law. It first shows up in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, Jesus quotes that later on in chapter 22, verse 39, when he's asked about the greatest commandment in the law. And so that first half is pretty well established in the Old and New Testament. But the second half of that teaching, hate your enemy, is nowhere to be found in Scripture. That is not a quote from anywhere in the Old Testament. That's a quote from the scribes and Pharisees. You see, in their attempt to interpret Moses, they unfortunately distorted Moses. The problem with the scribes and Pharisees is that they were always trying to clarify the law, to to narrow its focus in order to make obedience more feasible. And in so doing, they inevitably lowered the standard. They watered down the law. So notice in this case how they lowered the Old Testament standard of neighborly love by leaving out the key phrase, 
as yourself, right? It's not, it's not that hard. It's not that sacrificial to love your neighbor if self-love still comes first. Yeah, I'll be kind. I'll be loving towards you as long as that somehow serves my self-interest. I can do that. But if you're asking me to love my neighbor as myself or even more than myself, that feels humanly impossible. But not only did the scribes and Pharisees lower the standard, notice how they narrowed the object of our neighborly love by leaving out the enemy. You see, the the category of neighbor for them only included good people, people they like, people that like them, people that look like them and talk like them and thought like them. Their neighbor simply became their fellow Israelites. Let me show you how I I think they misinterpreted the law. Turn with me to Leviticus 19. I I want you to see um, the actual passage that, that they're looking at and trying to interpret for themselves. If you're using the Black Pew Bible, it's in page 191. Look at Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17 to 18. Leviticus 19, let me read starting in verse 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So it's likely that they took the phrase, your brother and the sons of your people, and they assumed that those terms were synonymous with neighbor. That's probably how they interpreted neighbor as just another way of saying Israelite. And so in in their minds, it gave them permission to hate a non-Israelite, to hate the Samaritans, to hate the Gentiles. This, of course, was the same category mistake that Jesus had to confront when he told the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who is my neighbor? To whom am I obligated before God to show neighborly love, to show loving kindness? You see, by even asking that question, we're trying to establish limits to the definition of neighbor. We want it more narrowly defined in order to exclude the stranger or the enemy. It's unreasonable, we tell ourselves, for God to expect us to love those people as I love my own people, as I love myself. But do you see how this mentality is what feeds our sinful prejudices and can be used to justify hate for certain groups of people. This kind of rationalization is what undergirds a sinful form of nationalism that looks with suspicion upon the foreigner, the immigrant, the other, and even looks down upon them with a sense of superiority. And friends, this this kind of evil thinking is sadly being justified in our society today. Again, the problem is a gross category mistake. According to to Jesus, who's teaching according to Moses, there is no category in the Old Testament for a non-neighbor. 
There is no such thing as a non-neighbor, a set of people for whom the law of neighborly love does not apply. To imagine that, that there are some people that you don't have to love, that you can justifiably hate, is categorically wrong. And there's no way you can use Scripture to back that up. I mean, even the way that the scribes and Pharisees were trying to use Scripture, the way they tried to use Leviticus uh, chapter 19 is an example of bad exegesis. They weren't studying the chapter properly. Sure, they were trying to read love your neighbor within context, but they didn't read enough of the context. They didn't read enough of chapter 19 of Leviticus because in that same chapter, you have a clear mention of the sojourner, and the stranger as objects of your neighborly love. Let me just read to you Leviticus 19, verse 34. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Did you hear that? The Lord is saying that there's no such thing as a non-neighbor. Loving your neighbor as yourself here includes loving the stranger as yourself. And by extension, loving your enemy. And why is that? Did you, did you hear God's logic? You shall love the stranger as yourself for you were strangers. You were once strangers to the loving kindness of God. You were once his enemies and rightful objects of his wrath. But in the land of Egypt, God set his mercy on you and let his wrath pass over. And so if the Lord, your God, treated you when you were strangers and enemies, if he treated you this way when you were strangers and enemies, then how can you treat strangers and enemies with anything less than the same kind of love? That, my friends, is the beautiful logic of Scripture. But what the scribes and Pharisees have done is to twist it. They found a way to justify their hate for people who aren't like them or people they simply just don't like. Friends, th th there is such a thing as a healthy sense of patriotism. And there is a place for, for a deep love and appreciation of your cultural heritage. But we have to resist an ethnocentric tribalism, and to reject any attempt to limit our neighborly love to just people like us and to actually justify our hate for the other. We have to resist. We have to reject that kind of thinking. In contrast, we are to choose love. We are to choose love for the other, even if the other is an enemy. This is our second point. Last week's passage gave a command to us that was put in the negative. To, it, it told us to not resist. Do not resist the one who is evil. Do not retaliate against your enemy. The focus there last week was on renouncing our self-centered preoccupation with fairness, with always getting things fairly. Otherwise, we want to pay people back. But in today's text, Jesus goes further and he, and he focuses on replacing self-centered desires to always be treated fairly with now a self-giving desire to love regardless of how we're being treated. Look at verse 44 again. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
Now, I, I know this is where critics are going to question the practicality of the Sermon on the Mount. I know it sounds ideal, but it also sounds idealistic. It sounds impossible. Do you really think it's possible to love the wicked man who intentionally drives a car into crowds of bystanders in order to inflict carnage and death and terror? Does Jesus really expect the victim of abuse or sexual assault to actually love her attacker? Does Jesus want family members of those who have fallen victim to gun violence to really love their loved one's killer? We might be able to understand a command to, to not seek an eye for an eye, to not take vengeance into our own hands, but it seems cruel to expect victims to go further than that and to actually love the one who has inflicted so much harm upon them. So this is where we need clarification. This is where, friends, we need to understand the kind of love that Jesus is talking about. Now, many of you are probably aware that in the Greek language, there are various words that all translate into love in English. And there are nuanced differences between those four words. And so there's the word storge, which refers to the love of family. It typically describes parental love for your children. And then there's the word eros, which is love of beauty, the love that you feel for someone in a romantic sense. And of course, there's philia. It's a love of mutual respect shared between friends. It's the camaraderie. It's the brotherly love that you feel among your friends. But then there's the word that's found here, agape. And agape is different in that it's a love born of a decision. A love born of a decision. It's not a love that's ignited by the loveliness of the other person. It's not a love that responds to the worthiness of the other person. It's a choice. It's a choice. And that's why it's different. Because you can't command those other three loves. You either feel them or you don't. You kind, the kind of love that you naturally have for your child, for your spouse, for your best friend, it's not something that you choose to feel. You either feel storge, eros, philia, or you don't. You can't command those loves, but you can command agape. Agape is a volitional love where you choose to love someone even before you feel the love. It's the will to will the good will of others even if they don't deserve it. So to love your enemy, hear this, it does not mean you condone their behavior. It doesn't mean that you like their personality or their beliefs or their lifestyle or their choices. But it does mean that you treat them like you do. Now, of course, we can't just stay there. We can't just settle with that, because if our love for the enemy simply amounts to a choice that we grit our teeth to do, to treat them kindly while on the inside we seethe and we boil with hate and bitterness, if that's the case, well, we're still not there yet. We're missing Jesus' point if we settle there. How you feel in the heart does still matter. That's his whole point in these 
in these illustrations that he's been giving us in chapter 5. But agape love is special in that you don't have to wait until you feel love for a person before you choose to obey the command to love that person. And what you're going to discover is that when you make that choice to love, something begins to change inside of you. God's word, my friends, is living and active. It does more than just inform. It performs. It does something in you and through you by the power of the Holy Spirit. So when you submit to God's word and you choose obedience, God's spirit molds your heart and aligns your heart to his heart. So not only do you will what he wills, but you begin to feel as he feels towards undeserving sinners. Listen again to C.S. Lewis. This is a quote from him out of Mere Christianity. He says this, the rule for, for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste your time bothering whether you quote unquote love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the greatest secrets When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, well, you'll find yourself disliking him more. But if you do do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. The difference between a Christian and a worldly man is the worldly man treats certain people kindly because he likes them. The Christian, trying to treat everyone kindly, finds himself liking more and more people as he goes on, including people he could not have even imagined himself liking at the beginning. So have you ever, have you ever prayed for your enemy? Have you ever made that conscious choice that I'm going to just get on my knees before God and pray for this person I really don't like. Jesus tells us to pray for those who persecute you. And of course, that involves a choice. You choose to pray for the enemy. And if you do so, you're soon going to discover that person's no longer my enemy. I I like what William Barclay has to say about this verse. He says, We cannot go on hating another man in the presence of God. The surest way of killing bitterness is to pray for the man we are tempted to hate. If you bring that person before God in prayer, there's no way your heart can continue to remain filled with hate and bitterness towards that person. Go and pray. So do you have an enemy in your life right now? Someone who has purposely wronged you? Someone who has intentionally hurt you? Someone who is maligning you? Someone who is persecuting you? You don't have to trust them. You don't have to respect them. You don't even have to like them. But you are to love them. And the way you start to love them is by bringing that person and bringing his or her needs into the presence of God through prayer in Jesus' name. That, my friends, is a fundamental way that you can choose to love your enemy. But I realize, I realize it still seems very impossible 
You know, to a civilized man, it's already asking a whole lot to tell him not to retaliate against his enemy. But now, now you want him to, to love and to pray for his enemy? That's asking too much. For a civilized man, that is too much. But not, as we've been saying, for a gospelized man. Not for the man or woman who has been covered by the blood of the Savior, who has been born again by the power of the Spirit. If you are a child of God, then then you can do as your Father in heaven does. That's Jesus' point in verse 45. Love your enemies, pray for them, verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. This leads to our third command in the passage, and it's calling us to imitate our Father in heaven. Now, there in verse 45, he's not saying that if you manage to love your enemies, you get to be a part of God's family. You have somehow earned your way to having him as your father. No, of course, that's not the case. That, that, that would be a works-based interpretation of that verse that would not fit with the rest of the gospel. I think Jesus means here that if you are a child of God, then the family resemblance is eventually going to show. You'll, you'll love as your heavenly father loves and, and so what does it mean to love as the Father loves? Well, simply it means that your treatment of others will no longer be governed by their behavior, by how they treat you. Instead, it will be based on the freeness of grace. Because that's, that's what Jesus meant when he spoke of the sun rising on the evil and the good and the rain falling on the just and the unjust. The wicked are wicked. And God does not ignore that. His justice will still be done, whether on the shoulders of Christ as the savior of that wicked person or on their own shoulders one day on judgment day. But before that day comes, he gives sun and he gives rain even to the wicked, causing their crops to grow as much as the righteous, sometimes even more than the righteous. That's an example of the common grace that God shows to all, which he expresses in a love that he indiscriminately shows to both the good and the bad. And we're not talking here about about that particular redemptive love that he has for his bride, for the church. That's a special love that, that if you are part of his bride, you should glory in. We're not talking about that particular redemptive love. Here we're talking about a general providential love that he has for all mankind, even the worst among us. Because we're talking about a love that's not governed by who we are and what we do, but by who God is and by what he freely chooses to do. That's the love we're talking about here. So friends, the only way to love your enemies like God the Father is to be freed from your obsessive preoccupation with the self. I mean, just think about it. Just think about all the rude, unkind, maybe even hateful thoughts that you had this week. What caused them? What was the source of them? Was it not 
other people and what they said to you, what they did to you, what they thought about you. I know it's easy to place the blame on them, but really it's about you. You reacted that way because you're so focused on you. This is really one of the sad results of the fall. We are so easily governed by by the words and actions and opinions of others because we're so wrapped up in ourselves. And that's why we need Jesus. That's why we need his gospel to free us from a bondage to the self through his, his life and his death and his life again. Jesus reconciles us to the Father. He secures for us the Father's love, the Father's acceptance, the Father's approval. And that, my friends, is so liberating. It's so freeing. I mean, just think about, think about if you had to give a presentation at, at work or a presentation at, at, in, in class. Imagine, though, if your boss or your teacher had already reviewed your work and privately informed you that you aced it. You've closed the deal. You've got the A. You've got the acceptance and the approval from the one who matters most. So secure with that knowledge You can go into that presentation and you can endure the harshest of criticisms from your enemies. Because no matter what they say, no matter how rude they are, how mean-spirited they can be, you can love. You can love them and, and even pray for their success in their own presentation because you're not wrapped up anymore trying to secure things for yourself. If you're if you're secure in the love of the one who matters most, who matters most of all in all the universe, if you're confident you have his approval because you have his son as your Lord and Savior, then the way that you treat other people will no longer be governed by how they treat you, by whether they're good, whether they're evil, whether they're just or unjust. Now you can just treat them on the basis of the freeness of grace. That's really the only way you're going to be able to love your enemies is by experiencing that kind of love first from God the Father. Brothers and sisters, this is how we demonstrate to the world whose children we are. When we love even our enemies, we are exhibiting that unique agape love that's only found in the Father and found in his sons and daughters. And Lord willing, our enemies are going to see that love. They're going to see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. So this leads to our last point. This section of the sermon, it began with an exhortation in verse 20 to surpass the world in righteousness. And it ends here in verse 48 in the same way. Look back actually starting in verse 46. Uh, Look in verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? That question right there, what more are you doing? Wow, that is a sobering question. That is a question you do not want to hear coming from Jesus. 
And that's why we should really be asking that ourselves now. Don't wait till you have to face Jesus one day to hear that question. Ask that question to yourself now. What more am I doing than someone who hasn't experienced the new birth, who hasn't been covered by the perfect righteousness of the Savior, who doesn't have the spirit of the living God living inside of them? If if you only love the lovable or only those who love you back, what credit is that to you? Even unregenerate, unrepentant, unsaved humanity loves like that. And the Bible teaches that all mankind is born totally depraved, but that doctrine doesn't suggest that fallen man is incapable of doing anything good. It's just that any good that we do always has the traces of evil attached to it. But even even the worst of sinners is still capable of loving his family and his friends, his own countrymen. To Jesus' audience, you know, back then, there was no more wicked a class of people than tax collectors. Tax collectors betray their own people to line their own pockets, and so you would think that they, of all people, would be incapable of love, and yet they do love their own people, their own kind. If you you think about it, to love those who love you is really just a positive version of lex talionis that we talked about last week. Instead of, I'll hurt you if you hurt me, it's essentially, I'll love you if you love me. I'll do good to you if you do good to me. I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. That's the ethic of a civilized society. The church... We are a gospelized people. Within the church, we are a gospelized society, and so much more is expected of us. So Christian, what more are you doing than others? It's not enough to resemble a civilized person who's just generally nice to people. Unfortunately, to many people in the world, even even people in the church, That's the impression of what a Christian is. A Christian is a nice, moral person. But of course, there are lots of nice, moral people out there who reject Jesus as the Son of God and as the only Savior of the world. So it's not enough to be nice, to be moral. We are to surpass the world in righteousness. We are to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. We are to imitate his perfect love even towards enemies. Let me read to you verse 48 once more. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I know you might read that and feel so deflated, so defeated, But notice with me, friends, notice how Jesus said to be perfect, not as God is perfect, did you notice? But as your heavenly Father is perfect. He's assuming in saying this to you that you've been born again. You've been adopted into his family, that you are filled with his spirit, and you have his father as your father. He's speaking to his disciples. And so to call you 
to act like the Father and to love like the Father is not asking too much of a Christian, a born-again man or woman of God. So this verse, I think, is really helpful in clarifying what a Christian is. A Christian is not the man who reads the Sermon on the Mount and decides he's going to live like this. He's going to try to be perfect as God is perfect. No, a Christian is the man who recognizes that his sin has created enmity between him and God, but who also recognizes the love that God has shown to us in that while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us, reconciling us to God so that he becomes our father. So the Christian is not the one who's just trying to be perfect. He's the one trying to be like his father. 